Welcome to Live and Dare Podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by liveandare.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number seven, and I'm interviewing Nietzsche Shanti, who is an internationally respected spiritual teacher, seminar leader, writer, and educator, committed to sharing practical wisdom teachings for happiness and enlightenment. Nietzsche started doing meditation when he was 16 years old. Later on, he completed an MBA and then worked in the corporate sector for some time. Despite having a promising career, he was drawn to pursue his spiritual quest further. So, in 2002, he was ordained a Buddhist monk in the Theravada tradition. After six years of living in forest meditation monasteries in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and also various parts of India and the US, with the blessings of his teachers, he stepped out of the robes in early 2008 and now shares joyful teachings in happiness joy shops, youth programs, corporate trainings, and meditation retreats around the world. In this episode you will learn what is the core message of Buddhism, how intimate relationships can help your spiritual growth, which spiritual principles help you have better relationships, the power of walking meditation and movement meditation, and the importance of being honest about our experience. Nietzsche, welcome to the show. Where are you? Thank you, Niraj. I'm doing very well. I'm in Pune right now in India. That's great. How's India this time of the year? It's not too cold. It's moderately warm. And yeah, it's just typical India climate. <laughs> okay. All right. Can you briefly talk a little bit about your background, your journey in spirituality and your work now? Sure. I'm happy to do that. I think my first inclination towards these things began in school. My, I went to an interesting school where we had no curriculum and the children themselves decided what they wanted to study. And this was based on the teachings of an Indian sage called Sri Aurobindo. They had a school which was founded on the belief that children themselves are inquisitive and they want to learn. Every, every morning we actually started with five minutes of meditation. They didn't really teach us meditation. It was just a silent time, sit together quietly really say that we kind of got distracted, we didn't know what we were doing. But nevertheless, starting and ending each day with five minutes of just silence and having teachers that were seeing the process of education not only as giving knowledge, but as awakening a curiosity and uh, a willingness to inquire. That was, I think, my first, uh, like I would say, the first spark that led to further down the line. When I was 16 years old, I was introduced to meditation and I began practicing on morning and evening began with about 15, 20 minutes and went on to doing about an hour in the morning, hour in the evening. And this really began to have a big effect on me. I began to notice I don't get angry as much. I don't get irritated as much. And I noticed a certain clarity in my life, which I'd never experienced before. Like, for example, I could have a conversation with someone and I would remember every single thing they said at the end of the conversation, which was, I mean, I never knew I had that capacity to do something like that. Hmm. Also, my memory dramatically improved. I was doing very well in academic. I was an average student before, but suddenly after few months of meditation, I found that I had a dramatic improvement in my in my memory. I think I topped my class, I got the highest marks in my class when I passed out. So all of these experiences led me to really appreciating the, the gifts that meditation brought me. And I began to study the Buddha's teachings in more depth. And uh, at the age of 22, I ordained as a Buddhist monk. And uh, I lived in Thailand for about six years from 2002 to 2008. Before you became a Buddhist monk, you were practicing the meditation as taught by the Buddha, the Vipassana and Shamatha. Of course, I had learned different styles of meditation, but the one that really clicked for me was 
the style taught by S.N. Goenka in the 10-day Vipassana retreats, which happen all over the world. Quite a beautiful system where people volunteer. They don't charge you anything for learning this process. And for 10 days, you live there, mostly in silence. And it was pretty intense. It wasn't easy. But I really began to appreciate the benefits I got from that. And the way they explained it, something like your blog, you know, it's quite scientific, quite modern, not too much based on just scripture. Of course, it is based on traditional teachings, but the way it's presented is very accessible. So I really like that. And I like the fact that I could ask any question. The teachers were very good at answering those questions in a way that I could understand. Can you briefly explain how to do meditation? When I initially began, the foundation was having conduct that is not harmful to anyone. That's even before meditation. Because if you're someone who's always lying and hurting and stealing and things like that, by speech and action, you're hurting yourself and others. Then when you sit to meditate, your mind will be too clouded and too restless to do any practice. They actually emphasized a foundation of wholesome actions before that. And the next step was calming the mind. And the practice they gave us was the mindfulness of breath. It's called Anapanasati, awareness of natural respiration. And being aware of the breath going in and coming out. And they explained it as a very universal practice because, see, breath is not a Hindu breath or a Muslim breath or a Christian breath. Breath, everybody has breath. Mm -hmm. And it's always there with us from birth to death. And also, breath is very connected to our mind states. So if you notice when you're angry, the breathing pattern changes. When you're upset, it changes. When you're sad, it changes. And when you're very calm, the breathing pattern again is quite different. Now, when we have an emotion come up, we have a challenge of either we get totally caught up in the emotion or we want to distract ourselves from the emotion. But we don't know how to have the middle path of being aware of it without getting trapped in it. And the breath was one way that they taught that you're aware of the breath. And even though it is a manifestation of that emotion, but you don't get as trapped in it as the way you would if you just focus on the thought or the emotion. People complain that as they are trying to pay attention to the breathing, the breathing yes. pattern changes. And, and they are constantly distracted with the breathing changing because of their yes. observing of it. Well, the problem I had actually was different. When I would sit to meditate, I'd get an intense heaviness in my head. I was very concerned, am I doing it wrong? So I went to my teacher and uh, I told him that whenever I sit to meditate, I get this tightness in my head. What's, what's wrong? And he smiled and said, really? You get a tightness in your head? That's a very advanced state. Hmm. So then <laughs> I felt very happy about that. Hmm. And again, this is a skill of a teacher. Instead of making it a problem, he said, oh, that's a really advanced state. You, you're hmm. so young and you're already getting this tightness in your head. And I think this is very beautiful. So the thing I've learned about meditation, one of my teachers taught me, is that everything that happens in meditation is good. Mm. That's a very nice thumb rule. Whatever happens in meditation, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's good. Why? Because even if it's unpleasant, what you're doing is a healthy activity. You're being in the present moment. You're witnessing what's happening. So I would look at that also as an uncoiling. It's like an unburdening. It's like a letting go of some inner stress, including thoughts, including restlessness, including confusion. It's all welcome. So it's mm -hmm. a space in which everything is welcome. So I would say, yes, if your breath pattern changes, not to worry about it, just watch that new pattern. That's, that is your natural pattern at this moment of time. Just mm. stay with that. That's fine. I see. And then by time, it will just kind of calm down and go into a harmonious pattern. And it may or, or it may not. If truly the breath is uncomfortable, then I would actually say, well, then go ahead and consciously breathe in a way that's comfortable for you for a few minutes. Consciously breathe a little deeper. Consciously breathe. Just find a nice rhythm that feels relaxing and feels good. And after that, let it naturally uh, just find its own natural rhythm. I see. So the meditation that you learned with Goenka, was it uh, exactly the same that you later on learned in the monastery or there was some slight differences? When I was in the monastery, they emphasized different practices. The monastery I chose was a place where they give you a lot of freedom to practice whatever you wanted, which I really appreciated. However, they also emphasized new things like walking meditation, which I hadn't done before. 
And this was a nice balance because in the Goenkaji system, you pretty much sit for 10 hours in a day. When you go for the retreat, you're sitting 10 hours a day, which can really get to you after a while. So I like this balance of sitting and walking, sitting and walking. This was, and walking meditation, instead of being aware of the breath, you're aware of the steps as you're walking. You feel the legs touching the ground, you feel the leg lifting. And uh, another meditation they emphasized, which was again new for me, was mindfulness of the parts of the body. And you actually start with the outer body parts, like the hair on the head and the hair on the skin and the nails and the skin and then you go into the inner body parts now initially i had never been taught because i was told that you just experience what you're experiencing without imagining and in this case it required certain imagination you're actually imagining the different body parts but i was surprised at the benefits i got from that because as a young person one thing that came up very strongly sometimes in meditation was sensual desire mm. i had never been told a skillful way to deal with that and so i like to joke that you know Earlier, I would just imagine taking off the clothes of the opposite sex, but now I also take the skin off. <laughs> <laughs> and you, also, you actually witness what's inside the body. And the Buddha teaches this as a skillful way to balance the mind. And so, you know, inside the body, and in fact, even on the body, like the hair comes out of the head, it's not very pleasant. If the nails come out, it's not very pleasant. If the tooth comes out, it's not very pleasant. But mm -hmm. altogether, it gives us the illusion mm -hmm. of something very beautiful. And we get caught up in that illusion. So this was helpful for me as a young monk to look at the parts of the body, and not so much to generate disgust, but just to understand that, look, this is what the body is made of. And the sense of uh, desire is just something that one is creating through uh, just one's conditioning. So studying the parts of the body from inside out and observing the sensations that are connected to all of these parts of the body, would you mm -hmm. say then that you had a more clear understanding of what sensation is and what desire is that allowed you to be a little bit more separate from it, less obsessed with it? I think it definitely helped. I didn't combine sensation with it. Of course, sensation was a different practice. In this case, I was just simply aware of the body parts. Each body part is made up of elements. So for example, there are parts of our body which have more earth elements. So the hard body parts like the hair and the teeth and the skin and the inner organs would have would be the hard body parts. But then there's also more the watery elements like blood and phlegm and pus and all of those things. Now you look at earth element, water element, then of course there's the the heat element, the metabolism of the body, which is the heat element. Then there is the air element, which causes movement in the body. And then there's the space element, the gaps in between. Now, if you look at it as elements, outer elements, inner elements, this whole sense of strong identification of this body starts to get loosened. So it, it really helped to dislodge that. Of course, as a monk, you're introduced to many different practices. I'm just giving you a few examples of how uh, body awareness of body parts was one important one. Walking meditation was another important one. And the third important one, which again was unexpected for me, was awareness of body movement, which until then I had never been introduced to. And this was a practice I learned called Mahasati. It's kind of hard for me to demonstrate it on this as an audio, it's like a podcast. And it consists of simple rhythmic hand movements, which maybe later on you can give a link to my website, which has a maybe an hour-long video, which describes this very simple, and you don't do it with open eyes, which is different from the way we normally meditate. And I found that practice particularly useful. For, so for a long time I did this. Mahasati practice of rhythmic hand movements, which translate to a stronger embodied presence being in the body, aware of what the body is doing throughout the day. So wow. these are some of the very helpful practices. For me. I'll put the link for the readers in the show sure. notes. So some of our listeners have an understanding of the Buddhist teachings, but some of them, they don't know much about it. So if you yeah. would explain for a lay person, what is the core message of the Buddha? What would you say? Let me actually tell it in the form of a story. I find sometimes stories explain things better. Most people would have heard of the Laughing Buddha, which is like this big rotund, you know, this fat... Uh, the Chinese monk. one. Yes. Yeah, the Chinese. And he's just called a Buddha. He's not really the Buddha, but he's a, a monk who apparently may or may not have lived at that time. But he's a mythical figure. And he represents the joyful aspect of awakening. 
And the story goes that he was once uh, traveling to a village and his habit was he'd go to the central part of the village and he always carried a big bag. If you look at these pictures of this big uh, laughing Buddha, he always had a little bag, yeah. like a big bag, like, like a Santa Claus kind of bag with him. So he'd go to the center part, the center square, and he'd open up his bag and all the kids would come and he'd give them these little toys and he'd play with them and he'd roll in the dust with them. And uh, there was a scholar who was looking at all of this and he was very disgusted. He said, this is not the way monks behave. You know, This is just, he's rolling on the mud, he's playing with the kids. If you look at his clothes, they're almost falling off. It's like, this is a very unbecoming of a monk. And these kind of monks are spoiling the message of the Buddha. They're kind of spoiling the tradition. So he mm. said, I'm going to confront this guy. So as this monk was leaving, he confronted him and he took out a sword. And he said, tell me the essence of the Buddha's teachings and I'm going to cut your head off. And this monk who's always smiling, for once stopped smiling. He looked into his eyes and he's carrying this heavy bag. He just opened his fist and the bag fell with a big thump behind him. Then again, he smiled. He picked up his bag. He turned around and he started walking away. The scholar is very surprised. What just happened here? You know, this man is, he dropped his bag and suddenly it struck him. This is not an ordinary monk. This is a very wise monk. And he threw his sword away, touched his feet and said, please forgive me. I didn't realize you're an awakened teacher. So the essence of the Buddha's teaching is put down the burden. Hmm. put down the burden and all the things we've assumed to be ourselves it's about putting it down and there are five things the Buddha says we assume to be ourselves which on closer investigation you find are just a part of the experience it's not really yourself it's a part of the experience so there's body there's feelings there's memories it's also known as perceptions there's intentions or the ideas we have of what we want to do and then there's consciousness that which is aware of all of this and the Buddha says, when you closely investigate these five facets of our being, you'll find that all of them are impermanent, they keep changing, they don't give you lasting satisfaction, and they're not personal. In other words, they don't follow your commands, your dictates, to go this way or go that way. This is the way I understand the Buddha's teachings, a close examination of these five aspects of our being that we take to be self, and to realize by direct experience, not just by theory, not just by someone telling you, but to really investigate, is it really true that these things change and they don't give lasting satisfaction and this is the way i understand the buddha leads us back to our true nature uh, like my name is nitya shanti unchangingly peaceful and <laughs> mm. <laughs> imperturbable right how nice is this the name that you got as a monk my monk name was jnana santi which is similar it's a pali name which means the one who knows peace mm. and when you leave the robes you don't normally take your monk name with you i wanted to have a name that was reminded me of the direction i wanted my life to go so i i chose this name for myself it's nitya shanti which means unchanging peace how nice so the teachings of the buddha show us it asks us to look inside ourselves to examine our own experience and mm -hmm. to see that all of these five uh, components of our identity of our human experience they are impermanent and they're kind of like going on by themselves Mm -hmm. So would you say that everything in our human experience, like our emotions, our feelings, our intuition, our thoughts, all of this fits into one of these five uh, elements? Yeah, I mean, this is, if you investigate closely, now of course, there are many different frameworks in which people look at the self. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, this is, this is the way that they look at it. In the Hindu tradition, they have something else called the koshas. At the end of the day, it's about close examination of what we hold on to. And I found this very practical. So I definitely like this model of these five things. Also, if go a little deeper, it's past my, the way my body used to be, the way my body is, the way my body will be. Now we have attachment and suffering around that. Oh, I used to be so thin, I've put on weight now. And what if I become old? You know, what if I lo lose my you know, lovely teeth and lovely hair and all of that? Mm -hmm. So this is around the body. Same with feelings. You know, my feelings, I used to be this way, I am this way, I will be this way. There's both 
craving for that as well as there's dissatisfaction around that. Same with memories, you know. I, it used to be like this, is like this, will be. And like this. And also with, with intentions, also with consciousness. And also, in, Buddha says, inside, outside, gross and subtle. So actually, in examining these facets of our being in a very, very detailed, uh, a very close way, getting very intimate with what's actually always with us. We want to learn about the rest of the world. Most universities of the world teach us all kinds of things about pretty much everything in the world except our own being, because that can only be known through direct experience. And this is the different kind of university. The word Buddha means to be awake. So it's waking up to who we really are. And who would you say who you are? Well, this is the thing, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the moment you describe it, it's like, can I describe the taste of water? You know, it's one of those things, I mean, unless you taste the water, do you know what water is? One example the Buddha gives is the taste of the ocean, that it is uniformly salty. Wherever you go in the world, you, the, the taste of the ocean is uniformly salty. In the same way, the taste of these teachings is uniformly liberating. Mm. So all you can say is that it, it's a liberating taste. Another way he says this is the little Pali quote by him. He says, Sabba rasan, dhamma rasan janati. Which means of all the tastes in the world, the taste of the truth beats them all. So, in other words, all the experiences you can have in the world, and we can have all kinds of very interesting, pleasurable, exciting, meaningful experiences. But the Buddha says the taste of truth beats them all. Hmm. And for me, the taste of truth has actually got no taste. <laughs> it's like, it's not a specific taste. It's a tasteless taste. Yeah. But you know, once you have this tasteless taste, the taste without a taste, then there is something about that which nothing in the world can compare with. You will find that if you genuinely have that taste, you will keep coming back to it one way or the other. You can never for too long be uh, go astray from that. And I found at the age of 16, I got introduced to meditation. It was very hard in the beginning. I had a lot of you know, distraction, physical discomfort, doubts, all, all that. But nevertheless, there was a glimpse of something. And that glimpse was enough that I just kept coming back. And it mm. kept on deepening and flowering. And I like to say that it really put my life in the direction of truth. Mm. I think that's why people become monk. That's why some people, uh, or, or even if they don't become monk, they, they devote like one or two hours uh, every day to practice or that's they true. do some retreats once a year. You start having this feeling of, of your true self, of consciousness. And this feeling that, that you call the tasteless taste of truth, it beats up every other feeling. It's like you yeah. cannot compare. <laughs> Any other happiness that we can have, it just pales in comparison to this feeling. I was listening to a talk, uh, I'd gone to attend a spiritual teacher's talk last evening, a friend of mine invited me, and he gave a nice example of being bound by a stout rope. And in the beginning, that's how we are. We're bound to our patterns, to our conditioning, to our ways, our, our identity, and our beliefs about ourselves through the stout rope of conditioning. But as we do this practice, the rope is still there, but now it's a burnt rope. And a burnt rope, as you know, it may look like a rope, but it's generally got, it's got no strength to it, it's got no grip to it, right? And so that's the kind of freedom that starts coming. That everything is still there. You still have, you know, you maybe do the same work. You have a personality. But it doesn't grip you the same way. There's, there's something within you that's free. Hmm. That's the kind of taste that's, you know, of our true nature. I like to say the steering wheel of a car, which is fully opened up. Hmm. You know, so otherwise, we have a sense of I am this. I can do this. I can't do this. I'm like this. I'm not like this. And that's fine. Until then, life throws you in a position. Say, Wait, I never thought I could do that. I never thought I would say that. I never thought I could become that. Like it really challenges our notion and this is very disorienting. Even positive identities, even sense of, you know, I, I meet people who say I'm, I'm a positive person, you know, mm. or they say I used to be a really positive person, but then this incident happened and I don't know what's happened. Mm. So even so-called positive identities, they also lock us in. Yes. So what is it like 
to go beyond identities, which is why our true nature is not something you can really describe and put into a little, you know, that this is what it is, because then again, that will become a new identity. Hmm. I don't know if it was the Buddha who spoke of this or another master that I read, but the metaphor is one thing is jail is a jail of stones and iron, mm -hmm. and the other is a jail of roses. It's still a jail. It's still a jail, yeah. still a jail right? Yes. And I, I like what you spoke about the the letting go and the understanding that everything that we identify with, it's not who we are. Because if you are, otherwise you're always working on the level of the mind, right? Mm. We, we human beings, we, we seek fulfillment, we seek happiness, and we seek to avoid suffering. And, and that's what the Buddha spoke about. And the seeds of suffering, according to the Buddha, is the three poisons of the mind, which is craving, aversion, yes. and ignorance. But Correct. all these poisons of the mind, they happen inside these five elements that's right that's so right. the moment i start understanding that i am not these elements because they arise they they do whatever they want to do and then they pass then suddenly i'm i'm beyond all these poisons of the mind i don't need to nice. to work with uh, affirmations or or to write 15 reasons why this doesn't yeah. serve me or <laughs> things like this not that these things are not helpful they they are definitely helpful but to be able to step behind the whole get out of the whole mess by seeing our true nature very nice you know, the three poisons you talked about, the, traditionally they're called Raga Dosa Moha, which is craving and aversion and ignorance. And a simpler way that I like to describe is, is wanting, not wanting, and not knowing. So one is the energy of I want, I want, I want, which takes us away from the simplicity of just being. And the other is I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. And the third is one is here, but just one is just lost. So one is not even aware of what is happening. So these are the three, exactly what you said, the three poisons the Buddha calls them. And they are the one that color our direct understanding of who we really are. It's like clouds, it's like the clouds in front of the sun. Hmm. Well, many people when they start hearing these teachings, they have the impression that Buddhism or Asian religion in, in general is very anti-life. It's like you, you, shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't want this, you shouldn't get angry or... Because desire and aversion is, is such a strong part of how people uh, live and, and experience their own identity on day to day. What would you say to that? In my understanding, the moment you go anti anything, that immediately again distorts. Because what is anti but don't want? Again, one of those three again. So I know it can appear like that, but in the actual practice of it, it is an honest exploration of our experience. It is an honest realizing that yes, there is there is a desire for this. There is a wanting of this. And when I have the wanting of this, this is what happens. And there is sometimes a dislike and an aversion for this. And when I have a stronger version, this is what happens. So I think instead of getting guilty for having desire or feeling uh, upset at my being upset, it's really about realizing your own experience. So it's not so much a commandment that, you know, you should not have desire. You should. That's not going to work. It's going to create more guilt and more uh, sense of shame. It's about just noticing what happens. What happens when you're in those mind states? And what happens when those mind states are absent? Hmm. Is it pleasant right. or unpleasant? And what you'll find is that what I found is I was, I was still very effective in a more balanced way because now it's not coming from a strong pull of I have to and I shouldn't. Like one of the teachers said, it's like a vacuum in the sense that you're not being pulled anywhere. In a vacuum, you're just, you're just floating, right? Hmm. So you're not being pulled, I have to do this, I shouldn't do this. There's a certain freedom there. And then it's like we said, the steering wheel is opened up. So there's a, there's a kind of spontaneity which is free from too much of self-consciousness or fear or embarrassment or trying to prove oneself. There's something very simple and beautiful about that, very grounded about that. So there's no pull and there's no push, 
but you yeah. still have the freedom to move about. Yeah. And, and you can move more than you could move before, because before <laughs> <laughs> things are pulling you once, and messing well. Yeah, he once said it in a nice way. He said, my disciples don't lean forward, my disciples don't lean back. So what does it mean? He said, they don't, they're, not, they're not looking forward to something, they're not trying to get somewhere, and now they're trying to get away from something. And especially in terms of death, they're not looking forward to death, and nor are they afraid of death. So they abide in the present moment. So this is what it means. It, in fact, it's the opposite of anti-life. It is fully living life. Because notice when you are in a state of desire, then you're not really in the present moment. You're imagining that the present moment can get better if I have something more. Hmm. If you're in a state of aversion, then again, you're not fully in the present. You're imagining that once something is out of my experience, then I'm going to be all right. Yes. And of course, if you're in a state of ignorance, then again, you're, not, you're disconnected from the present. You're lost in some imagination or something or the other. So... Actually, it's the opposite of anti-life. It is the most vibrant way of living. It is about fully encountering. There's a nice book by, so basically called Full Catastrophe Living. Ah, John it's Kabat John Kabat-Zinn, yes. John, yeah. yeah, John Kabat-Zinn. So what a lovely name, Full Catastrophe Living. It's like really leaning into this experience of what it means to be alive in an honest way. As people mature in this path, I have found them to be very genuine and very authentic. They're not trying to hide their challenges. They're very honest about the challenges. I met one meditation teacher who had been meditating for 30 years. And he said, sometimes I look at, uh, you know, pretty, I mean, he was in his 60s or 70s. I look at pretty women and I get aroused looking at them. I just witness it. I just watch it. Mm. So how honest, I, I found them to be very honest about their experience mm. generally. And one gets, it's not about trying to suppress and say, oh, I'm beyond desire now, I'm beyond. Mm -hmm. No, but you, you witness it. So you, you don't get caught up in it the way you used to. Mm -hmm. It's something that arises and passes away. It's like clouds in the sky. And you see a sense of I am the sky, everything else. This is all just weather, passing weather pattern. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think honesty is one of the most essential virtues in anybody trying to to grow and also uh, in spirituality as well. I think we have had so many problems uh, both in India and in the West where spiritual teachers, they kind of give one image of themselves and that's yeah. not exactly who they are. They pretend or they believe that they are beyond certain things and, and they're not. And eventually when that comes up, then there is distrust in the teachings and there is distrust in the, in the Sangha. And, so I think in general, we can all benefit from being truly honest by saying, yeah. look, I have had this deep experiences in meditation. I, I feel beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not an individual person, that I am I'm this expanse of consciousness. But at the same time, these things sometimes arise. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I get, I feel proud. I feel pride. Sometimes I am arrogant. I think this is really the best attitude to have towards ourselves and towards those that, that spend time with us. So coming back a little bit to your life as a monk, that's obviously a very different lifestyle than most of us experience. What did you bring back from that lifestyle in terms of small tweaks in, in your way of being? And what lifestyle changes you could advise for people that they can, they can do in their lives and support their practice, support their growth more? I was a monk in a forest tradition of Thailand and Sri Lanka. So it's a very, very different way of life. We don't use money. We live in a community that is not that connected to the outside world, living in a forest. We don't use uh, most of the gadgets that people are used to using these days. So it's a very different way of life. A lot of time for practicing, being with oneself, introspection, but the whole culture by itself, within itself. One of the things that I found uh, coming back was that I was much more flexible and adaptable to different situations. Mm -hmm. And that would be like, one would not expect that because this is a, a way of life that is so, there are very clear ways in which you do everything as a monk. I mean, we have 227 rules, that's just a major rules. 
mm-hmm. and there are several thousand minor rules and one would that would seem oppressive but actually we don't realize that even in our normal life there are plenty of like put, if i put my hand out you'll put your hand out and you'll shake my hand if i drop something i'll say excuse me or i'll say thank you now we don't think of these as rules but this mm-hmm. is just something we take for granted if somebody is coming you'll open the door for them so in the same way monks also have a certain way in which they treat their robes in which they treat their bowl in which they treat each other in which they relate to each other and the opposite sex and all of these things are part of the monks way of life so one would imagine that having been trained in that for many years one would actually feel uh, it would be hard to come back to a normal life and i was quite amazed to find that i was rather adaptable and it was this show that the mind has become quite malleable quite flexible quite responsive to the the situation at hand one thing i uh, this monk life gave me was a great comfort in different kinds of situations i didn't expect a certain kind of food all the time i didn't expect a certain kind of dwelling all the time i would be very comfortable because as a monk i've lived in the forest at the foot of a tree i've been fed by the richest and poorest kinds of people i've eaten the simplest and the most elaborate meals as a monk i've had to heal myself sometimes with the most basic things and also been given pretty good treatment sometimes i had very simple clothing like literally rags which you can stitch into your own robe and also been given some very fine clothing so all the requisites of life from the most simple the most humble to the most elaborate and most beautiful to keep a balanced mind with all of that hmm. that was one thing which came out of it and another thing which i noticed in terms of perception was a sense of looking beyond nationality looking beyond you know patriotism okay this is my country this is my uh, religion this is my people a sense of all beings this whole everyone is my family and not only human beings but even animals we're all part of one big family mm-hmm. and so a sense of loving kindness a sense of compassion and caring for all beings that was certainly awakened to a greater extent and i would say a natural confidence i mean i i felt that i could pretty much wherever i went in whichever group i didn't feel out of place i didn't feel oh i have to prove myself just feeling quite comfortable in my own skin in fact one of our teachers pema chaudhary she says that perhaps the whole teaching is just about being comfortable in your own skin mm. that's and so i can't really recommend a specific monk's lifestyle is very different you wake up 3 o'clock in the morning you eat once a day it, it, in my tradition wow. and you don't use money and things like that now not everybody can do that i can't even i can't do that in normal life given the way things work it's kind of hard to get your meal just one time a day which is easy for a monk cuz you're walking through an entire village you get a lot of food i think it's about being adaptable it's about having an openness to learning from every situation being responsive and having a sense of goodwill to all but do you feel like for instance having a having a more structured routine even in your normal life now is it's helpful for your practice or it doesn't matter honestly i've never been someone who's been very good with structured routines of course as a monk you have no choice because you're there <laughs> with everybody else and you have to get up at a certain time and do everything but i found that i've never been someone and i can of course uh, torture myself with the, oh i should i should i should but what i found is a more natural approach and uh, just trusting myself that what works i do have some i mean i can't say what no routine i do have some routine but i'm not as you know like absolute got got to do this exactly the same way every single day for me i haven't found that that really works it creates more mm. tension in my practice so being more uh, open to the responsive just being responsive to each day as it comes mm. i travel a lot for example so i can't always control my meals and you know the kind of people i'm with all the time the kind of things i'm doing but i have some broad practices that i find fit into the the whole day mm-hmm. well 6 years of waking up at 3am in the morning that kind <laughs> of did it for you <laughs> i kind of did it i i would never a morning person but you know when you're in that tradition that's what you do wow. like almost even those 6 years i i had a hard time meditating in the morning so i would do walking meditation when if i sit and meditate i get sleepy 
yeah, some people just are very good at waking up in the morning. I tend to be more late night. I would prefer being up later at night. Maybe being doing an MBA, being up late at night for years together, mm. maybe that did me in. <laughs> no, I, I totally get it. I'm a little bit like that as well. When when I was around 18 or 19 years old and, and I had this idea of uh, living as a Zen Buddhist monk, I yes. started waking up early in the morning, like 5 a.m. I was never waking up that early, like I never enjoyed it. And I would do meditation for about an hour and a half. But half of that time in meditation, I was just fighting off sleep. So yeah. it, it, I see that it had a it had a role in my life to kind of say to myself how important this is and to kind of uh, develop the practice. But after a while, I said, no, I'm just going to wake up at 6 or 6.30 and, yes. do, and do a little bit less of meditation. But I was not sleepy at all. That's very what nice. matters. <laughs> I think that's very good to just, you know, instead of getting into a pattern that this is the way, this is the formula for getting enlightened. You have to wake up at 3 o'clock. You have to meditate for two hours. It's nice to learn from people's experiences, but it's also good to be honest to yourself and find something that truly works for you. That's a good approach. Mm -hmm. Do you have an interesting story or perhaps a, a funny story about your teacher or about your time in the monastery that, that you can share <laughs> with us? Let me see if I can think of something. Uh, one of my teachers told us a story of when he was living in the forest alone for a few years. And uh, the place he was living there were some people who were doing some illegal cutting of trees and they were illegally cutting the trees there. Now, he's a forest monk and he also felt it's his responsibility to also protect the forest. He tried to talk to them and say, you know, this is our shared resource. We shouldn't be cutting off these trees and things like that. And he was just one person and there was a village over here. One day, somebody came to meet him and they happened to come in a forest ranger's. I mean, they may have known someone who was a forest ranger. They came in his car to meet him. And the villagers thought that he's complained about them to the forest rangers or, you know, four-wheeler mm. to come mm. and meet him. And when it went away, the next day when he went to have food, one of the village people who was very against him, he came out to give him food. So my teacher was very surprised that this man is normally totally against him. But this day he smiled and he gave him food. So my teacher was very happy that he received food from this man. And when he went back and he put the food in his mouth, he immediately felt a burning sensation. They had put poison in his food. Wow. And uh, he spit it out, but it was, it was really, it was, the poison was spreading and he was in a lot of pain and he collapsed over there. And he said he had an out-of-body experience where he felt that he was leaving the body, he was fading away. Somebody else was close to him and they were trying to revive him, but he had just fainted. And uh, he felt that he is now all set, he was all set to leave the body, he was all set to depart. And then he saw, he had a very clear image of two of his teachers. Two of his mm -hmm. teachers were there. And he could feel their presence and they were smiling at him. And then they were mentioning to him that his, this is not his time yet. Mm. And he was actually not keen to come back at all. He was quite happy that it's done now, time to move <laughs> on. But they said, no, it's not your time yet. And he actually had to come back very slowly. But he felt it was like, like a very slow elevator coming back. Slowly, slowly, slowly coming back into the body. And when he came back into the body, there was again tremendous pain. And he was, of course, he healed from that. But his liver was weak after that. They put some kind of a strong pesticide in an attempt to kill him. Hmm. So these were some of the fun stories we'd hear from our teachers. Is he still there in the monastery? I think he may not be in Thailand anymore. He may be in some other monastery now. What is his name? His name is Ajahn Nyana Dhammo. He's an Australian monk. I'll, I'll put the name in the show notes for people sure, to check him sure. out. Checking your Facebook, you are now in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to hear from you. How do you see your practice affecting your relationship and your relationship affecting your practice? How does these two kind of aspects of your life play together? Well, I think being in a relationship, an intimate relationship 
you can't have a better litmus test for where you are in your practice because mm-hmm. it's very easy to be a monk and to talk to hundreds of people and you're sitting on this pedestal and you have this beautiful beautific smile on your face and you're giving advice teachings that's one thing but when you have someone who's very close they see all of you they see all your patterns they see all your shadows you know and they, and of course when we know each other really well we can really push each other's buttons very effectively so in my experience like for example when i began teaching for the first few years i would often get this comment that you're you're teaching us all of these things but are you married i said no i'm not married they said well you don't know what you're talking about because all, these are all very nice things to say mm. but you're not married yet so 3 years back maybe it's 4 years now uh, i met my to be wife and a year later 3 years back we got married and that's when i knew that every single thing i teach people i found it was really working for me so i really found it very everything i taught whether it's authentic speech whether it's deep listening whether it's giving people the benefit of the doubt if you are in a reactive state of mind not to say or do anything for me it's been a very beautiful journey it's been a very strong affirmation for me hmm. that what i've been sharing with people is not just some nice sounding stuff it's very very applicable in the real in the real testing ground of our daily relationship so i find my wife esther and i we have a very good strong relationship Not that we never have disagreements, but typically the disagreements never last for more than a few minutes. <laughs> and I don't think that in all these years there's been a single time where we we, we kind of made a commitment that we'd never go to sleep on a fight. So even if we have a disagreement, we'll mm. sort it. We'll we'll sit later into the night and we'll sort it out. And that's been a really good uh, commitment to each other. When when I got married, one of the things we did was we asked everyone there to share with us their best relationship advice. That was a fun thing because everybody wrote down what the best thing that they'd learned in relationship. And one thing very simple which I found very useful one of my uncles who've been married for like 40 years he said to me that anithya it's very simple whatever your wife says just remember she's right <laughs> <laughs> so so this this became a game for us so whenever esther was saying something i didn't agree with even if it was irritating me or i said this is obviously not right i would smile and say well maybe you're right and she said of course i'm right said, well, maybe maybe it's true said, of course it's true right and then we both laugh and then little while later then if i would say something that she wouldn't agree with she'd be like all right maybe you're right so yeah i'm right of course i'm right and she said, maybe it's true so it became the sense of giving each other the benefit of the doubt hmm. and realizing that no outcome is ever more important than the relationship itself that yes we can disagree on certain things and maybe have different preferences and we can get moody sometimes but ultimately the relationship is more important it's been a big blessing i i actually for the longest time resisted getting into you know, long term committed relationship see i've been i've been a monk so as a monk we don't have very high opinion of marriage which is why you become a monk <laughs> <laughs> but I was surprised to find that actually applying these teachings was very very beneficial living in the present moment having goodwill to each other not looking for perfection looking for connection this is a very big one hmm. we have an idea of what perfection is supposed to be like so put that idea aside because actually even you are not perfect if you want to have a perfect person you got to be perfect and if you are not perfect then put perfection aside and focus on connection hmm. and that's what i found to be very healing that makes yeah. a lot of sense wow it's uh, some golden tips there <laughs> <laughs> now if you could travel back in time and meet the old version of yourself in the beginning of your journey maybe uh-huh. denita when he was 16 years old what advice would you give yourself well the biggest advice would be not to be so hard on myself i mean i was pretty hard on myself i was uh, i had a strong idea of how i should be and how quickly i should get to some imagined place and a lot of second guessing myself there was a lot of pain around that a lot of pain about self judgment and comparison and So I would basically emphasize just you know enjoy the journey. Something I shared th- these days is called rule number 6. Comes from a teaching by a teacher called Benjamin Zander. Mm. And rule number 6 is don't take life so seriously. 
So when I do my retreats, we all remember rule number six, don't take life so seriously. <laughs> so I would tell myself, you know, don't take life so seriously. Mm. And I would also share with myself some things apart from meditation, things like questioning one's thinking. Uh, I found certain simple methods of emotional balance, emotional freedom techniques, tapping certain acupressure points, balances the mind. Certain simple things apart from meditation, which I found over the over time to be quite useful. You know, so basically enjoying the journey, having a sense of humor, not having a very not being very fixated on trying to achieve something, get somewhere, just doing one's best and enjoying the journey is what I probably tell myself. Great. This technique of tapping that you're speaking about does this come from mm -hmm. the Chinese tradition? It's based on the Chinese tradition, but it's a modern development because the Chinese tradition mostly focuses on physical healing and uh, emotional freedom techniques is developed by Gary Craig, who learned from Roger Callahan, who basically for the first time, maybe not for the first time, but at least from what we know, they applied tapping, stimulating certain acupressure points mm -hmm. to let go of a presently arisen, emotionally afflictive state. So whether it's stress or anger or fear or a phobia or an addiction. And by tapping certain acupressure points, one was able to really dramatically quickly release it. So this is one version. Another new, new development is a person called Robert Smith, who's come up with something called Faster EFT, which is just another simplified, polished up version of EFT. So I just find that there are, you know, it's, it's kind of opens your mind that there's just not just one way to come out of things. It's good to learn from different traditions. Byron Katie has a teaching called The Work, which is based on four questions. Mm. You question your thinking, is it true? Am I sure <laughs> it's true? What happens when I believe that thought? And who would I be without that thought? And then you turn that thought around. Now, these are certain things that I found very useful in addition to meditation practice. I would also teach my younger self walking meditation because until then I only used to sit and close my eyes or this <laughs> Mahasati practice of hand movement meditation. Mm. So I found these things very, very helpful. They broadened my practice, deepened my practice. But of course, you know, we all learn as we go along. Yes. And, uh, wherever we are. <laughs> this thing of uh, taking yourself less seriously and enjoying the journey more, that's something that I hear from several people that I interview. And I yes. think it's just it's just natural. Like you are so intense, you you want you yeah. want to grow, you want to to be I free. I think it's just natural. And by time, you you kind of see that that itself is a form of suffering. True, that's true. So if people want to know more about you, where would they go? Well, they can see my website. It's Nitya Shanti. N i t h y a s h a n t i. Nityashanti dot com. I have a pretty active. I've recently have a SoundCloud page for the last year or so, and I've been sharing a lot of my talks and a lot of guided meditations are on SoundCloud. The link is soundcloud.com slash nitya-shanti. Okay, cool. Also on Facebook over the years, I've shared quite a bit. I'm currently enjoying a nice uh, Facebook break. But if you look at the archives, I mean, for the last four or five years, I've shared a lot of things, a lot of teachings on Facebook, which people can check out. Facebook.com slash spreading happiness. I've way. been seeing your posts. Uh, pretty nice. So yes, I'll put all those you. links in the show notes and people can connect to you from there. Nitya-shanti, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Giovanni. It's, I think you're doing a great job. Your blog is really inspiring and I wish you all success with it. I hope a lot of people are inspired by the things you share there. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you. Okay. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at liveandare.com slash episode 7. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners with different meditation techniques. So be sure to stick around and please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. This quote is from Nyongye in Ripoche. Simply notice that you are aware. At any given moment, you can choose to follow the chain of thoughts, emotions and sensations that reinforce a perception of yourself 
as vulnerable and limited, or to remember your true nature as pure, unconditioned, and incapable of being harmed.